Welcome back to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. My name is Don Van Natta. Our guest today, Steve Almond, is nothing if not productive. He is the author of nine books of fiction and nonfiction. His essays and journalism have appeared in such outlets as the New York Times, the Boston Globe, and GQ. He's published more than 150 short stories, several of which have been anthologized in Best American Short Stories. His nonfiction book, Candy Freak, was a New York Times bestseller. You can hear Steve's advice each week on the Dear Sugars podcast. And his latest book is Bad Stories, What the Hell Just Happened to Our Country. I am thrilled to talk to him today. Welcome, Steve, to the podcast. Thank you. I don't feel as productive as you're making me sound. I feel like I waste (laughs) a lot of time. You are amazingly prolific. I'm astonished at how much great work you've done in such a short period of time. Now, our listeners probably don't know this, but you began your career as a newspaper reporter. For seven years, you were in Texas and then in Florida. And from 1991 to 1995, you and I were prowling around the same courthouses and city halls. I was a reporter at the city desk of the Miami Herald, and you were at the Miami New Times. So we have a shared history in common. That's right. I, I remember seeing your byline, and I remember, you know, swanning around Miami trying to find good, meaty, long-form journalism stories, That which for me was an incredible thrill because I came from a daily paper, a Gannett paper, where I had like 300 words to write about a country music concert or a heavy metal concert, and most of those words were adjectives, as I recall. <laughs> uh, and of course, Miami's the best news town in America, so it's it's just it's a great thrill to be a reporter in Miami, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I had never been in a city like Miami, which is amazing, beautiful, tropical, cosmopolitan. It's really polyglot. And also, and and you know this better than me, a a very, uh, a place where corruption flourishes, let's put it politely. Um, So that was fascinating place to work in. But also for me, um, I I think temperamentally, there are some people like yourself who are, who are well suited uh, for investigative work. I was frankly, far too anxious to do that effectively. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, and you and you also found, I think, probably by 94, 95, Steve, that um, you just became disenchanted with daily reporting or weekly reporting, I guess, for the Miami New Times. You, you felt you were pursuing subjects in a way that you write said made you feel predatory. And the hows and whys of corruption began to strike you as far less compelling than why people self-destructed in the first place. And so you took yeah. this big pivot and exp- explain how, explain why you felt that way and how that changed your, your you know, the pathway that you were going to take. Yeah. So, I mean, part of the, the goal of the fourth estate, and I think this is a laudable goal and a necessary goal and one of the pillars of democracy, right, is to, uh, you know, uh, afflict the comfortable and, uh, and comfort the afflicted. Um, and I think it's it's the job of the fourth estate to ask difficult questions and, and to hold power accountable. But as I said, temperamentally, I was very made very anxious by that. And the other thing that I would say happened um, was that I I began to realize that journalism wasn't asking about people's inner lives like I wasn't being asked to really answer the question like if I found a corrupt lawyer it was all about getting the papers on him and somehow making sure that he would be indicted or that he would be publicly revealed 
And yet I would encounter these figures and really be asking literary questions. Why did this person make such disastrous decisions? Why did their greed overtake their their goodness, their generosity? And you know, those are bewildering questions too, but they're the kind of bewildering questions that I associate with kind of literature, which is asking questions about the inner life, not really just the symptoms of why we behave in an evil way or a greedy way or a, a destructive way, but why people turn in that direction in the first place. And, but, you know, the best magazine writers, though, do attempt to answer yes. those questions, right? And did you feel you just didn't have the space or your editors weren't interested in answering those questions? I think it was more that our editors of our weekly paper needed us to get a big story that made our paper necessary, we really had to get kind of scalps, you know, we had to nail scalps to the wall. And I, I don't mean to say that because I think there were, their motives were bad. I think they believed in the mission of journalism. But I think the way that they justified our free paper being relevant was that they wanted us to bust people. And right. I, you know, I kind of wanted that too. We, you know, I, I got the mission and I got that it had a, an important role to, I would write a story about Wayne Huizinga, for instance, and it was like the unauthorized biography of Wayne Huizinga, the sport, late sports owner of, of all the teams down in South Florida, a guy who got his start in waste disposal and all that. And I was interested in tracing the way that a guy like that becomes powerful, which is in his case was really tinged with a lot of very ethic, ethically questionable behavior. It was really a story about how you succeed in business, which in America usually does mean that you uh, cut corners, if not break laws, right? So I think that was an important story, but I knew that I was going after him. I knew that I was trying to get the guy. I wasn't trying to understand him. I was trying to kind of nail him. And that did feel to me unsettling. And I felt like what I really was curious about is what made Wayne Heisinger want power so much? What within his past, within the crucible of his history, made him so full of desire for power in the world that he would do all these things that I was trying to document? And those questions are, are really the province of, of literature. And you're absolutely right that the best profiles and the best nonfiction is absolutely doing that work. But I really started reading short stories and novels, and I kind of... I became consumed by the idea that it was really my job to engage with the, the bewilderment of why people become evil, how their love gets distorted into evil or destructiveness. And I, you know, like all writers, I, I'm a jealous reader. You know, I started reading short stories and novels and thinking maybe this is a way to, to answer those questions about the inner life in a manner that, that won't make me feel predatory, but will make me feel like I'm exploring some kind of darkness, but for the sake of ultimately forgiving everybody involved rather than indicting them. Yeah, and, and what you just said there, Steve, you know, strikes me so much of your writing comes from this very strong sense of morality. And I, you were feeling that when you were at the Miami New Times, but you wanted to branch out, I think, and really tap that vein. And and around that time, I think you started thinking that your mission should be, and I, you put it so beautifully in a previous interview, you said your goal as a writer is you should be trying to break the reader's heart. You said you should always be trying to do that. That's your job, to break a heart and make them feel alive. What did you mean by that? Well, I think the job of any kind of creative endeavor, and this applies absolutely to the best journalism equally. I, there, I don't, I don't, I'm not one of these people who thinks, oh, well, uh, 
literature, you know, is the real art and, and journalism just a vocation. That's nonsense and it's snobbery at its worst. I think every good piece of writing, whether it's in a daily paper in, you know, Schenectady, New York, or uh, a novel that's published by a Pulitzer Prize winning or Nobel Prize winning author, the idea is that you are trying to show the reader somebody whose life is in disequilibrium and who is struggling with some universal bewilderment. Why do we lose the people we love? Why do we, uh, you know, behave self-destructively if our, when our lives are going well? Uh, how do we survive losses that feel almost unutterably painful? All of these questions are are just the bewildering parts of the human experience. And what writers are trying to do always is to find that deepest story, and that's the one that you know is going to make the reader feel more human because they've got some version of that story that they've lived. And that, regardless of what the medium is, whether it's creative nonfiction or novels or poetry, or I don't think that's irrelevant. Those are all important and distinct art forms. But I think the essential work is that you're trying to break the reader's heart. You're trying to enlarge their moral imagination and get them to literally care about somebody who they may not even know or somebody who doesn't even exist, who's just a fictional creation like Holden Caulfield, right? Or Esther Greenwood from The Bell Jar, mm -hmm. one of my favorite novels. Like those are people who I know as well as people in my life, better than some members of my family. So you went to some MFA programs, you applied to a whole bunch and, and, and went that route. When was it after that when you started writing the fiction and short stories that you felt you really had the confidence to do it well. Was it early on or was it a lot of effort that went into it before you really felt you had nailed it? Yeah, I think it was a lot of effort. I think young writers go through a certain kind of arc. Initially, I was sneaking away from the New Times and driving up on Friday afternoons up to FIU and, and taking this free workshop with John Dufresne, the wonderful story writer and novelist, oh, yeah. kind of yeah, kind of a hero of mine. And I, th I believed like young writers, I think have to like, I have this calling and I'm really good at this. And, and these stories I'm writing are amazing. And I'm really getting like into the inner life of these characters. And of course, the, the stories were terrible and they were, you know, <laughs> almost entirely the product of my insecurity and my kind of fragile narcissism. They were awful stories, derivative, mannered. I was really just imitating a bunch of other writers. But you know what, Don, that's OK. That's a part of the apprenticeship process is that you have to believe that it's all pouring out of you like like with the hot intensity of scripture like you have to believe that and what happens over for me anyway it took me about a decade to recognize that I was making some pretty terrible decisions out of insecurity and that they were mostly false and mostly designed to make me feel like I was a good writer rather than to really engage in the struggle of my characters and only after maybe five or six or seven years of writing terribly did I start to actually pay attention to my characters and what they were struggling with and you know that that that's been an incremental process I still feel that I often sit down and write terribly and write out of my own insecurity and write self-consciously and you know it's not like I'm past that it's just that sometimes I do actually start to feel what the characters are feeling and feel their struggle and I'm able to stay in the room with them in difficult moments when they're in total dis disequilibrium and they're overrun by emotion and you know I get overrun by emotion and so the stories wind up feeling more real but I think everybody who sits and writes and you know this it's it's really much harder than people realize because you're making all these decisions and you're sort of choked by doubt the entire time. And so that's really 
uh, that part of the process hasn't gone away. I think I've just occasionally can make better decisions, less false, fraudulent ones. But I still feel oftentimes like I'm just awful at it and would rather be doing anything else. I feel that a necessary part of writing well is that for a while, sometimes a long while, you have to write badly. And I don't mean that like like embrace your horribleness. I think you should try to get better. But I think a lot of an apprenticeship creatively is that you you're unaware that you're writing terribly or you're at least you're squinting at that fact. Mm-hmm. But but that is in fact the, the case. And the only way that you start to make better decisions is that you read the work of your peers and you see them making the same mistakes that you're making. In your work, you can't see it because you're too narcissistically attached to your work. But you eventually come to realize by critiquing other people's work that there are certain kinds of errors that you're probably making in your work. And so you sort of... S- start to eliminate those mistakes. And I think that's the only way to prevent yourself from from giving into the opera of self-doubt, if you know what I mean, where everything is about whether you're writing well or not. You gotta be able to judge your decisions on the page without judging your talent, without questioning your talent or your right to be telling the story. And that that process takes a really long time. And young writers, I think, get, if they're, if they're too intent on writing well, all the reader sees is them trying to write well, mm-hmm. not trying to tell somebody else's story. Steve, you've also talked about the value of having a great editor. Can you tell us just how important a good editor is or a great editor and what those great past editors you've had have brought to your work? <laughs> I'm thinking of like Tom Finkel, who was at the New Times. I remember I turned in a story once and he said to me, and he, he looked over it for a while and he marked it up and he handed it back to me and he said, well, the good news is uh, you got a lot of adjectives you can use for the next one. You know? <laughs> um, I, I think good editors are there because of what I was talking about earlier, Don, which is you really can't see your own work. You have to be a little bit too in love with your own work to make it. And so I think what a good editor does, yeah, I mean, a a good editor gently but firmly says, I know you think this is an awesome metaphor. He walked into the room and saw his wife with another man and his heart chopped like a like a helicopter whirly gigging dark, you know, black smoke into the dark abyss of his soul. Right. And a good editor says, actually, I know you love that metaphor and you're really attached to it. But look at the sentence. He walked into the room and saw his wife in bed with a with another man and his heart chopped, period. Stay on the verb. The verb was doing all the work in that sentence. And the rest of the sentence was you trying to show off for the reader. Like a good editor has a way of teaching you something that you didn't know, but in a way that's gentle enough that it's immediately obvious to you that you were showing off or showing the reader the writer rather than showing the reader the character. How important is the gentleness? You you mentioned gently twice. When you're edited, how important is you know, that tough love being dispensed in a gentle way. Well, I learned a lot, a a lot in grad school and I learned a lot about how a good workshop works. And I also Mm -hmm. learned a lot about how a bad workshop works. The work I do in journalism, like I think there's a certain gruffness and, and, you know, because you do the work quickly and because there's not a lot of time to sit down and have a kumbaya moment with the writer. I'm sure you've had this experience many times, Don. It's like, hey, here's the edit, period. I'm not going to like hold your hand through this. Like we got to get this thing ready for print. So there's not a lot of sentiment there and there's not a lot of padding of the the criticism with, with sort of gentle, constructive feedback. But in this other world where I teach creative writing to college students and, you know, teach 
forms of writing that are deeply personal, I feel that it's really the job of a good editor or a good teacher to say to the writer, I see what you're trying to do, and I love what you're trying to do, and I think that here are the places where you're doing it beautifully and effectively, and my job as your editor, my job as your teacher, is to get you to bring all of the story up to that level of the best moments. But I think you have to convince people that you know what they're trying to do and that you love what they're trying to do in order for them to trust your criticism as truly constructive. And I've been in workshops where basically all the students are competing to be the meanest because it's you know it's like Desraeli said right it's easier to criticize than it is to be right everybody can offer a criticism everybody can tear something down it's much harder to build something and I think that's true in our civic life and it's true in our artistic life and it's true of good editors that I always feel that they're trying to make the book that I've worked so many hours on sometimes so many years on that they're honestly trying to make it better and if they convince me of that, I'll follow them anywhere. Yeah, I completely agree. You'll, you'll, you'll knock down a wall for a great editor because they're also rare. They're, they're hard yeah. to come by. Um, Steve, back in 2012 in an interview, you talked about the loss of the American dream. And your current work laments where we are as a country. Is there a through line in your work that tracks where we're going as a country? Oh, well, bad stories that the new book is yeah. is definitely an effort for me to draw on all the different kinds of things I do to understand how the American story arrived at this moment like I'm a I'm a recovering journalist uh, uh, I was a journalist and I still believe very deeply in in the best journalism and I read it and I revere it um, so I'm sort of a recovering journalist but I'm no longer a journalist I'm not a political scientist I'm not an academic I'm a storyteller that's how I understand the world. And I think basically human beings are a storytelling species. That's the way in which we construct meaning. And so if those stories are good stories, if they're merciful, if they're intended to make to extend the bonds of human kindness, then there are good outcomes. I think the New Testament is one of the most beautiful stories, one of the best stories ever written. And I say that as a Jewish atheist, right? When I read the <laughs> New Testament, I read the Beatitudes, I think that's kind of the best of human uh, uh, ideals, that, that the meek matter more than the wealthy, that, that we shouldn't uh, be in love with our possessions. And still, instead, we should seek to help our fellow man, especially those who are struggling, who are sick, who are inequitous, who are vulnerable. That's a beautiful set of stories. That's the gospel of love as a revolutionary force. And I think there are lots of examples of, of stories that have allowed the species to thrive far beyond any other species right on earth stories are what allowed us to do things like uh, sort of set up trade routes or currency to uh, cooperate in large groups and, and make everything possible that we've achieved including the enlightenment right but i also think that there are bad stories that have always been with us and those bad stories always lead to bad outcomes i think a lot of people get caught up these days in sort of the news cycle and kind of reacting to what's happening in the news cycle and for me it's like Looking at the news cycle these days is like sticking my hand in a blender. I mean, it's just utterly <laughs> chaotic. There's, there's so much coming at you. And so for me, Bad Stories was an effort to step back from history a little bit and say, hold on a second. These bad outcomes we can look at all day, and I think it's important for journalists to, to look at what's happening at the EPA or look at what's happening at the Department of Justice or look what's happening with immigration or criminal justice reform. All of that stuff matters. But what I wanted to do with Bad Stories was say, 
what are the bad stories that led us to become such a divided country? What are the bad stories that have elevated demagogues who sow discord between us um, to such a, a, a prominent level? Why are their stories dominating stories of human hope, uh, of generosity, of, of mercy? And it's basically my effort to understand the American story by using the lens of literature. That's kind of the world that I know the best, and I'm trying to apply it to the world of our political life. Well, one of the things that struck me about bad stories is that it really is a, a devastating press criticism. You know, you say you're a recovering journalist, but you're a smart one and you know all the tricks of the trade, all the shortcuts, all the things that journalists do where they wink and nod and they're not necessarily honest with a reader. And right. in your book, you have 17 bad stories that you actually highlight where this occurs. And I'm curious, Steve, of those 17 bad stories, which was the worst one or the worst ones that you think led to the outcome of the 2016 election? Well, I'll, I'll cite a couple because obviously what, what I feel is that there is no one bad story. There's a whole bunch of bad stories colliding. And I think part of the reason people were shocked by the outcome was because there were so many different stories that we weren't looking at that were really colliding and sort of um, bringing us to a point in American democracy that nobody expected to get to quite as quickly. And so there are a couple that I think are really important to, to think about. The first is the story that our grievances matter more than our vulnerabilities. I think it's a, a human trait that we tend to focus on our grievances as a way of defending from recognizing our vulnerabilities. But I think it's really useful to understand that there are certain political actors and certain sort of propagandists and media demagogues who have recognized that they can acquire power and audience share by poking at people's primal negative emotions and that if they do that enough people will exalt their grievances and ignore their vulnerabilities so you have people voting against their own interests and I want to get just try to give an example because people oftentimes say well why would somebody vote for a candidate who's going to take away their health care well it's because they've been convinced uh, that maybe the more important thing is that an immigrant might take their job or an immigrant might infiltrate their community. Um, and I think that was happening in a million different ways, that people were exalting their grievances rather than facing their vulnerabilities. Because after all, it's hard to face our vulnerabilities. If you're a person who feels that you have a declining sense of utility in the culture, that you used to assume a dominant position and now that's being questioned increasingly, that's frightening stuff to encounter. And it makes us want to blame somebody. And of course, if you can figure that out as a politician or a demagogue, you can build your popularity, your platform, your audience share. So I think that's one of the stories that I think applies in a lot of different circumstances. On a more granular level, I think the story that I'm fascinated by because I think it's been so undercovered is the story of the fairness doctrine and the idea that it's impossible for the press to be fair and to be responsible. I think it's the basis of the criticism that we're hearing, not just from the right, but also from the left, because after all, Donald Trump might have been talking about fake news, but so was John Stewart. He was talking about how corrupt our, our, That's our, right. our media is, yes. right? It's on, the, it's on the left and on the right. Oh, absolutely. Right. So I think 
one thing that people forget is that when mass media arose in the early part of the 20th century, lawmakers immediately realized that they were encountering a tool that the founders simply had not anticipated. The founders had never anticipated that there would be a mass media that would be able to reach tens of millions of ears at the same time, at once, instantly. And the moment they did, they said, my God, if we're going to give public licenses to these broadcasters, we had better make sure that what they do serves the public interest. Because if we don't, if we allow them to be propagandists, if we allow them to advocate for private interests or for partisan interests, we're essentially giving them this tool that could destroy our democracy. And so, and, and also destroy them, right? This, was, this, this impulse was very much one of self-preservation of the politicians as well, right? Well, I think I would put it like this, that what they were thinking was, we want a free press. And sometimes that means that a free press is going to have to expose corruption, you know, corrupt powers. That's part of the job of the free press. But what we can't have is a press that becomes a for-profit press where it becomes profitable to propagandize to essentially demagogue. So what they did was they didn't say they didn't try to restrict free speech. But what they said is, if you're going to get a public, if you're going to get a license, you have a responsibility to debate issues of public importance, especially controversial issues. We want you to do that, but you have to do it in a, res- in a reasonable way, and you have to present all sides of the issue. See, people try to vilify, especially demagogues, try to vilify the fairness doctrine as somehow trampling on the First Amendment, and it's just nonsense. What it's actually trying to do is say, hey, the essence of the First Amendment is a healthy debate. So what we're going to do is make sure there are no echo chambers, and if we're if a radio host is going to discuss, uh, let's say, the healthcare system, then they don't just get to represent one side of the issue. They don't just get to demagogue a particular perspective. They are going to have to talk with other people who have informed opinions as well. And the idea was that you would have a conversation and a debate rather than an argument and a one-sided argument. And for many years, the Fairness Doctrine prevailed, and our media was essentially a lot more equitable, a lot more reasonable, and the, the public discourse that arose from that media was a lot more reasonable. And at the moment it was repealed in 1987, you saw the immediate rise of partisan radio, especially right-wing radio. And when that, as that skyrocketed in later Fox News, what you started to see was a huge audience that was essentially being fed one opinion over and over. You could go all day from your car in the morning to your you know, workplace, to your car again, driving home and then at home, and only hear one version of reality, whether it was a fraudulent or a verifiable version. You were only hearing one side of the story. And when that started to happen, essentially, you, we're still dealing with the fallout of that, which is you have people who are essentially I believe, kind of for-profit propagandists. The other thing that I was going to say to you that I really love about, and I saw it in, I think, one of your other interviews, is how you talk about, in your in the way you write, you don't want to preach down to people. You want to sort of have them come to these conclusions almost organically, but without that preaching aspect, That right? I mean, that, that haranguing that goes on constantly. And, and that was another area that I wanted to get into. It's a subtle thing. It's a tough thing to maybe talk about in a podcast, but, um, but it's something you do, do that I admire in your writing, for sure. I think it's crucial because the, the initial draft of Bad Stories, and I write about this in the book, was very angry. It was very mixed up. I was, I was still launching Harpoon 
cartoons, you know, at people I considered my adversaries, and that never works. The readers don't want to be strong-armed. They are more interested in you telling stories than trying to preach to them, you know, preaching sermons. And so that's really, I worked very hard in the second draft of, and the third draft of Bad Stories to say, I need to get rid of all this stuff where I'm just sort of trying to win the argument. I need to get to a point where I'm really telling stories about being in confusion and being in doubt, because I really think that's where people live. You know, we're, we cling to moral surety. We cling to a sense of assurance in life because we're all completely haunted by doubt and confusion. And I feel like most good writers are, you can go to the, you can go to them and you can trust them to reassure you that you're not alone, that they're, you know, that the life is genuinely confusing and full of, of bewilderment. And that's part of the reason that I, I'm glad to hear you say that because the last thing I wanted to do in, in any of my work is to feel like I'm one of those voices of assurance because I, I feel very confused most of the time about any number of things. And if I'm trying to make sense of things, it's more an act of desperation than an assertion of my righteousness. It, the, the, the thing about it that really you know speaks to me is just it's it's just how honest you are about the failings of the press which i just you know even people that cover this stuff don't yeah. write about it the way you write about it so yeah. um, well i have the advantage of of have, of being a, an apostate you know what i mean uh, right. i i can really sort of so from outside of of the journalistic endeavor really say, well, and it's not just the mistakes that other people were making. I mean, I try to confess to here's what I did as a young reporter. Here's the way that I was trying to yes. to be a big deal rather than really tell the truth. And in a way, I feel like, you know, it's, it's my uh, way of confessing to my own sins more than trying to, you know, condemn other people. It's a great part of your book. And I highly recommend to all of our listeners to check out Bad Stories what the hell just happened to our country, um, Steve's latest book. Steve, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a question about your NFL book, Against Football. Uh, since I've spent so much of my recent career writing about the NFL and the sort of power games that occur behind the scenes, uh, the book yeah. is such a you know compelling indictment of the NFL's response to brain injuries and CTE, but it's done with such a personal, like so much of your writing, such a personal touch and storytelling because like me you're this diehard NFL fan growing up and you describe how the NFL's response to brain injuries and just what occurs on the field gave you basically disenchanted you and then turned you away from the game entirely describe that process and how you came to that subject and I'm also curious if you think the NFL's doing any better in this regard in in, in the last year or two since your book was published well, I wrote against football. Like the last thing I wanted to do was write a book that was like, football's dumb and it's brutal and it's mean and you shouldn't watch it. I don't think anybody wants to read that book and I certainly didn't want to write that book. The book that I, I had to write in a way was, what is it like to walk away from something you really love? Because I think football is a lot of things when you examine it as a moral undertaking and I detail those in Against Football. But I think what it is for fans like you and me is it's beautiful and it's brutal and it's primal and it's anarchic and it's intricate and it's balletic and you see men make miracles with their bodies. And it's absolutely, I think the only way you can write a book that really tries to examine something is from a place of love. Like Bad Stories isn't trying to say America's terrible and corrupt and we're all superficial. It's saying 
America is great and beautiful, and we have to find the, the, the part of ourselves that's the most beautiful, the part that's merciful and generous and, and wants to care for one another. I feel the same way about football, that the way that I wanted to write the book was to say, I, I love this sport, and I want everybody to understand why I think it's so remarkable. And then I also need to say that having examined it from a lot of different angles, not just the head injuries, but also what it does to our perceptions around violence and aggression, race, gender, sexuality, the economic system, the way that the NFL converts our devotion to our athletic heroes into this kind of cold, hard cash and distorts the landscape of our cities. Like looking at the totality of it, I just had to walk away. I think the thing that caused me to really have that change of heart and and decide I couldn't watch the games anymore was, you know, having my mom basically have a dementia where I walked into her, her hospital room and she didn't know who I was. She didn't know where she was. You know, this is a woman who graduated from Yale Medical School. She's one of the most intelligent, fiercely intelligent people I've, I ever knew. And seeing that suddenly made the relatives of Junior Seau and Mike Webster and all the rest of the players who suffered CTE, I suddenly saw what it's like when somebody loses their brain. We think of it as just this computer up in our head, but that's where our, where our souls are housed. And once somebody's brain is gone, their, their selfhood is gone. And it's absolutely devastating to encounter firsthand. You can never see the game in the same way. That being said, I take no pleasure in not watching the game. Just because I have moral qualms about football doesn't mean that I still don't think it's unbelievably entertaining. I didn't watch the Super Bowl, but every single person who described it to me was obviously utterly thrilled by that game, by the narrative, the suspense of it, the swings of momentum, the uncertainty. I mean, that, as somebody who's a writer, football is the most, in a narrative sense, is the most pleasurable sport that I know of. The amount of scoring there is, how intricate it is, the way everything can seem like it's completely ruinous and suddenly Barry Sanders makes just the right cut at just the right moment and it's just you know 70 yards of green grass between him and redemption I mean that's a beautiful thing to witness so I feel like you can't really criticize something unless you really love it and that's where I was coming from in in against football did you have any blowback from the NFL about the book (laughs) one of the yeah I mean I'm such a small potato that I really didn't but it was I realized at a certain point that when I got a letter from an NFL lawyer I I had sort of gotten on their radar you know even just for a second and they're like there's some guy out there who's saying that this game is you know is really corrupt and the truth of the matter is that uh, what the central realization I had in against football is really the same realization that I had in against in in bad stories which is it's really up to us you know, I think one of the easiest dodges that football fans try to do, and I did it for 40 years, believe me, was to sort of say, ah, it's the media's fault, it's the player's fault, it's the owner's fault, they're greedy, it's up to them, they're adults, they know what they're doing. But ultimately, the reason the NFL exists, the reason the football industrial complex exists is because of fans like you and me. And the only way it's going to change is if fans like you and me decide to take our business elsewhere. I feel the same way when it comes to bad stories. People will often say to me, like, well, so what's the solution? And I always want to say, we're the solution. Go look in the mirror. 
that's the solution. Are you going to be politically active in whatever way? It doesn't matter what ideology you are, what party. Are you going to advocate for the causes and candidates that you believe in? Are you going to start to embrace the duties of citizenship, not just the pleasures of being a fan or somebody who's entertained, but somebody who's actively engaged in the, pro- in the, in the project of self-governance? That's the solution. I know it sounds sort of old-fashioned, but I really feel like a lot of this boils down to personal responsibility. Steve, I want to ask you about your Dear Sugars podcast. Uh, your co-host, Cheryl Strade, the author, uh, is out in Portland, I believe, when you guys are recording, yeah. and you're in Boston. How do you guys manage that logistically when you guys are in two di- different places and are trying to give advice to people? <laughs> well, I have to tell you, Don, that, that one of the things that people don't necessarily realize is we record together. We record in the same room. And I fly out there. Sometimes she's on the East Coast if her schedule allows. But part of the reason that I schlep out there at great expense to you know the New York Times and certainly to, to my schedule and my wife and our kids, but I really feel like this kind of podcast is so intimate the kind of work that Cheryl and I are doing is so deeply personal, what the letter writers are struggling with, that we really need to be in the same room. We need to be able to look one another in the eye. And I think it's really a conversation that we're having. And it's such a personal conversation that it, it feels like it needs to be as human as possible. So yeah, I schlep out there <laughs> and we record, you know, 12 or 14 episodes in over three days and then we sleep for a week. Oh, wow. And we'll end it there. Thank you, Steve, so much for your time. Greatly appreciate it. I really enjoyed our conversation. Oh, so did I, Don. It was just a pleasure. Thank you, Steve. I highly recommend you get Steve's new book, Bad Stories, What the Hell Just Happened to Our Country. Uh, You've been listening to the Sunday Long Read Podcast. If you like what you just heard, please subscribe at Apple iTunes. And if you really like what you just heard, please write us a quick review. The podcast is the first cousin of the Sunday Long Read newsletter, which delivers the week's best long-form journalism to our subscribers' inbox every Sunday morning, just after 8 a.m. Eastern. If you don't already subscribe, go to www.sundaylongread.com backslash subscribe. A special thanks to our producer, Carrie Barber. Upcoming guests on the SLR pod include Brett Michael Dykes, Charlotte Wilder, Tom Juneau, Bonnie Ford, and our newsletter's guest editor last week, Rachel Sklar. My name is Don Van Natta. Thank you to all of you for listening. Before you know it, we will return with another episode and another fantastic guest. See you soon. 